morning. It's great to see everybody today. I'm so glad you're here. My name's Chad. I'm one of the men on staff here, and it's always a privilege to be able to be with you. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. That's where we're going to be today, is in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. I love it when we have the, the privilege of being able to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is just one of those incredibly relational moments that binds the heart of God's people together in a meaningful and a significant way. And so I'm thankful that we got to do that today, and it's always a privilege to be able to do that. We've been in a series called The Dash. The reason why we called it The Dash is because uh, we're, we're taking a look at a book that was written by an ancient king. King Solomon was considered the wisest, most successful king of Israel, and he wrote some of his wisdom down. He wrote some of it down in the book called Ecclesiastes, and really from the time of your birth till the time of your death, what you live in between is your dash. It's that dash that you might see on a tombstone someday. And so the question we've been asking is, how are you living your dash? What are you doing inside this time that's in between, in this in-between time? And so Ecclesiastes chapter 4 is where we are today. And, and I, wanna, I just want to highlight something before we read this passage of Scripture, something that's really important. Today, what Ecclesiastes 4, what we're going to learn from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I think may be some of the most significant truth that the Bible has for us. Because it's all about today, it's all about our relationships with one another. And you've heard me say this before, if you've been here at, you know, for any, any length of time, you've heard me say before that, that I believe that, some, that, that one of the most significant, one of the most difficult things you'll ever do is learn how to have a healthy relationship with someone else. I just, I just believe that's true, that one of the most difficult, most significant things you'll ever do is learn how to have a healthy relationship with someone else. And what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 are four different approaches that people take towards relationships, and only one of the four approaches, only one out of four, actually produces something that's valuable in your life and the lives of others. You know, it's important for us to get our relationships right because when I think about the, just the history of my life, those moments in my life that I have enjoyed the most, where I have felt the best, where I have celebrated the most, those moments aren't wrapped around something I've built and they're not wrapped around some activity that I was a part of. They're wrapped around the people I was with at the time. I still remember the day I got married. I still remember the moment that all of my kids were born. I remember the night before my second child was born. I remember that we had a family date with me and Londa and our, first, our firstborn. We had a date to Outback Steakhouse. And it was after we were at Outback Steakhouse that Cademan decided it was time for him to show up. And so uh, if, if you're pregnant and you need to get that started, bloom an onion. That's all I'm saying. That's, that's all it takes. Uh, that, that's all it takes. The, the most joyous times in my life are wrapped around people and my relationships with others. I can also say that the, the moments of my life where I've grieved the most, where I've suffered the most, where I've hurt the most, it's built around people. And so what we're going to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 today, I believe, has tremendous relevance to you and to me. And so let's take a look at it. We're actually going to read the entire chapter, and we have a practice here because we love to honor the reading of God's Word. We stand when we do it, and so go ahead and stand with me. And at the end of it, I'll say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you'll say, praise be to God. And the reason why we do that is because we want to recognize that these aren't simply the words of an ancient king. This is the Word of God, and this isn't simply my opinion that I'm spouting up here. I'm actually commenting on 
the Word of God. So let's take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4. You can read along with me in, in your Bible or you can see it on the screen. It says this. It, get, it says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for, the so uh, for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end to all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated. See, here's the things. Here's two principles. Here's the two principles that we're going to see today that we, that we really need to hang our hat on with Ecclesiastes chapter 4 as we take a look at these four different approaches to relationships. So two principles, four approaches is what we're going to see today. The two principles are this. Your relationships, your relationships reveal the maturity of your faith. The way you approach relationships, it reveals the maturity of your faith. There are people in this room that I've known for years. You all are deep, spiritually mature people. But there are also people seated right here in this room today that I believe are just spiritually apathetic. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're just here because someone invited you and you're just kind of fulfilling a, a friendship responsibility or a family responsibility. I want to say thanks for being here because this is a, first off, that's a great that's a great devotion to fulfill for your friend or for your family member. But at the same time, this is a great place to come and get your questions answered about what this book is really all about and why do people do this crazy thing, like get together and sing these songs and listen to some guy talk. This is a great place to get those, those questions answered. So I'm, I'm glad that you're here. But, but the quality, your relationships really do reveal the maturity of your faith. But your relationships do more than that. Your relationships refine the quality of your faith. Actually, God's given us one another to make each one of us better. He's given us the blessing of one another so that you can be strong when I am weak and so that I can be strong when you're weak, so that we can support one another, so that we encourage one another, so that we can lead one another, and so that we can learn from one another. These relationships that we have 
are an incredible blessing. And I don't care how many verses of the Bible you know, and I don't care how often you come to church, and I, and I don't care what you think you know about the history of Scripture, the way you treat people, the way you talk to people, the way you act towards people reveals far more about your faith than any meeting you can attend or any intention that you might have or any creed or doctrine or belief that you may hold. And so this is one of those mornings where God's given us a really clear way to measure the quality of our faith and the maturity of our faith and the measure that he's given to us is one another. Because the way I treat you matters, and the way you treat me matters, and it's a reflection, the way we treat one another is a reflection of what we believe about God. When I was at another church, I had a pastor, a pastor's wife at another church, and the pastor's wife was funny. She would always say, you know, this ministry thing, this ministry thing would be really easy if it weren't for all these stinking people. People make ministry so hard. And then she'd look up at her husband and she'd say, you know, come to think of it, marriage Marriage would be easy if it weren't for my husband. And she'd point at her husband, and she'd laugh, and then he'd point back at her and say, hey, if both of us agree on everything all the time, one of us just isn't necessary. You know, they'd kind of play back and forth like that. But the quality of our relationships, it, it, it actually is a great way to measure the maturity of our faith. And, and God uses our relationships to refine the quality of our faith. He does it all the time. And here's why I know that's true. But the Bible tells us that God loves us with an everlasting love and that we love him because he loved us first. It's actually the greatest commandment that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And what's that second commandment that comes right after you should love God? What do you think that is? What's, what's the second commandment? Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. One of the greatest ways we can express our love for God is by the way we actually practice a love for people. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, and we'll just see, this is just part of that spiritual truth, that the way we love people, the way we treat people, the way we talk to people, our approach to people really is a reflection of our love for them, which in turn is a reflection of our love for God. And if you don't have your Bibles or if you don't have it on your device, you can see it up here on the screen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 is really convicting. It says this. It says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has uh, excuse me, for he who does not love his brother whom he has uh, seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. In other words, if I can see you and you can see me and I can't love you, how could I possibly love this God that I haven't yet seen? How could I possibly do that? If I say I love you, but I don't actually treat you with love, if I say that I love God, but I don't treat you in a respectful, appropriate, loving manner. If I don't do those things, John, the Apostle John, the, the, the Apostle that the Bible says is the one that is identified as the one Jesus loved, he says you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And so this idea that we need, to, we need to invest significant attention and significant time in getting our relationships right, it, it, it matters. Because ultimately the most difficult, most significant thing you will ever do is figure out how to have a healthy relationship 
with someone else. Now, I said in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 that there's four different approaches that Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, there's four different approaches to our relationships that he identifies, and only one of those four actually adds any value whatsoever. So let's turn back to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 for just a second, and we'll see the first one. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1 says, Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed... And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. You see, in our, in our relationships, our first approach can be control. We can try to control other people. That could be our approach to people. I'm going to be the boss, and everybody's going to do what I said. I'm going to be the king, and everybody's going to do what I said. Because you know what? It's good to be the king, right? You, you're humble because, before the king, not because you want to be humble, but because the king can have you killed, right? That's not humble. That's not humility. That's humiliation. There's a difference between those. Some of us, in our approach to relationships, we approach relationships through the, this, this idea of control. If I can just control the people around me, if I can just control my environment, I'll find satisfaction, I'll find freedom, I'll find happiness, I'll be able to do what I want to do when I want to do it, the way I want to do it, because I'm in control. But here's what happens. Control only produces suffering. That's all it does. You see that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. It says, all of the ones who were oppressed... The oppressor is the one who's in control. The oppressed is the one who doesn't have any control. Oppression, control, all it ever do, does is produce suffering. Politically, that's really easy to see. You can look at the nation of Venezuela right now. There's a dictator down there that's been in, in power for years. And you can see the, the end result of his control over that nation. And that nation today is suffering as a result of it. There are third world countries that are being led by warlords and politicians that are they're desperate to remain in control and all their control is doing is producing suffering. Some of you are parents of teenagers who can drive now. And you think you're in control. <laughs> um, and, and I feel like quoting Darth Vader at this moment where you say the tighter you grip your, your hand, the more they slip through your fingers. How much control do you have in all of your relationships, not just with your driving teenagers? How much control really do you have over the attitudes and intents of your third grader, over the purpose that, that your wife has in her business, or the meaning that your, your husband experiences in his work? How much real control do you have? If, all your, if your approach to all of your relationships, if always you're approaching relationships from that perspective of, I've got to be in control, the end result is you're going to produce suffering in your life and in theirs. That actually becomes an, a decent way to evaluate which approach is the one that's most natural for you. If in your business you're known as the dictator, if in your business you're known it's my way or the highway, if you're known as that hard-nosed guy who always gets his way no matter what, and you're willing to step on anyone or step over anyone in order to get the job done, if you're known as that guy, maybe you ought to look around you and recognize the suffering that you've caused and that your approach to relationships isn't healthy because you're really just trying to control everything. You see, that's one approach. There's another approach. Let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. Here's the second approach. And the second approach, first approach, in the long run, it doesn't work. The first approach, I'm trying to control everything. You can't really 
You can't really control everyone all the time. You can't do it. At some point in those, in those countries, there's a revolution. At some point in your household, there's an argument. At some point in your household, somebody moves out. Why? Well, because I'm just sick of the suffering, and I'm sick of hearing from, and I'm sick of hearing about, because control just doesn't work. Here's a second approach that just doesn't work. Ephesians, or excuse me, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 4. <clears throat> then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and the striving after the wind. See, your first approach could be control. Control produces suffering. But your second approach could be envy. You look around at the people around you and you think, I can, I can do better than that. I can have more than that. Your ambition drives you to earn more, to have more, to be more, to, 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 to stand out a little bit taller, to, to compete a little bit stronger, to win a little bit more. Uh, when I was younger, I went to Champion Forest Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. Mike Taylor, who we were partners with in the Ukraine, he was the student pastor there at the time. And he invited me to come help teach what they call a Disciple Now weekend. It's our equivalent of an elevation weekend. And so I'm, I go down there to help teach. And I stayed in someone's home. You know, Houston's a big oil town. And students, about 30 students were going to come to this home to stay over the weekend. And this, this house was incredible. It was amazing. It was about a 10,000 square foot house, big enough for about 30 students to come stay all weekend. We had a great time. It was an awesome weekend. But I got there early. And when I walked in, they took me through the garage, and there's a you know, brand new Mercedes, a brand new BMW sitting next to each other in this giant 10,000 square foot house. Londa and I had just gotten married, and I was living in like an 800 square foot home. And so my house was like the size of their closet, which was awesome. And so I go inside, and I'm, I'm talking to the, the wife, the, the, the woman who lives there, and she's telling me about the different students who are coming, just kind of giving me, giving me a heads up. Hey, here's... This, this person's like this, and here's what they know, and they hang out with these people. Just kind of giving me the rundown. And it was hilarious because she gets to this one guy, and she gets to him, and she goes, Now, now this guy, his parents, they're wealthy. <laughs> and I'm looking around at the 10,000. It's an awesome house, great cars, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's awesome. I'm thinking... Clearly, the scale of comparison is very different uh, in your world compared to in my world. But envy drives us to overwork. Envy drives us to compete where there really is no competition. Envy drives us to do things that are outside our character or that may be really just a reflection of who we are. Alexander the Great was one of the greatest leaders that the nation of Greece ever knew. And what Alexander the Great, the reason they called him Alexander the Great, one of the things he was known for is he conquered the entire known world. Everything that was known about the world at that time, he conquered it all. And Plutarch was the name of the historian that recorded that recorded Alexander the Great's history, what he did. And what I'm about to say, the quote that I'm going to use actually comes from the great theologian Hans Gruber from the movie Die Hard. So this is not exactly, not exactly a quote from Plutarch. It's actually a quote from a movie quoting Plutarch. And so I don't know how accurate the quote is, but the point is relevant. The quote's this. It says, And when Alexander reached the sea, he wept because there were no more worlds to conquer. Envy is never satisfied. Envy says there's never enough and no matter what your relationship, if your approach to relationships is envy, all envy is going to produce in you, all it's going to produce is emptiness. Because enough will never be enough. Because every relationship becomes a transaction. I'm only getting to know you for what I can get out of you. And enough will never ever be enough. 
We actually sing about it in The Greatest Showman. They sing a song called Never Enough. And the whole point of the song is all the stars and all the, and all the night sky and all the spotlights and all the fame. It'll never, ever be enough. It's the lyrics to the song. And there are other songs that, that, that reflect that, that same idea. I want what I want when I want it and I want what I want right now. There's all kinds of these moments that just reflect that this approach, it doesn't work because enough is never satisfied Envy in your relationships will never be satisfied. If you approach your wife from envy, you will never be satisfied. If you approach your husband, if you approach your kids, if you approach your job from envy, you will always be empty. Well, see, that's another approach to our relationships that just doesn't work. Let's go on. There's another approach, Ecclesiastes 4, verses 7 through 8. And guys, this is probably one we're the most guilty of. Uh, I, and just for men, maybe, maybe control, maybe this next one. I don't know. It's, I don't want to identify it for you. I want you to be able to identify which one you struggle with the most. But Ecclesiastes 4, uh, beginning in verse 7, here's another approach that just doesn't work. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, Yet there's no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. You know, if, if, if relationships, you know, if they reveal the, the maturity of your faith and they refine the quality of your faith, these other approaches, you can approach through control, you can approach through envy. But so many of us, and, and men really are guilty of this, we approach through isolation. I'm just going to do my thing. You know, rugged individualism. I'm a man. I'm a manly man, and I don't need anybody. I just, I'm just going to build my, I'm going to build what I build. I'm going to do what I do, and I really don't need you or anybody else. That's, that's what Ecclesiastes 4 is talking about. Verse 7, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other. In isolation, you produce a life that's just hopeless. Isolation, it always produces hopeless, hopelessness. This last Christmas, we did a Christmas program. It was based on the Charles Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol. It's one that everybody knows. We'll probably do a variation on that this coming Christmas. I'm excited about it. But we all know the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. Through envy, he had everything. Through control, he was in charge. But more than anything else, his approach to every relationship was isolation. This is all for me. And what he came to understand over the course of his story is that what good is all this stuff if I have no one to share it with? What good is all this stuff if on the day I die, people I have zero respect for and zero care for, they're the ones who are going to get it, they're going to take it, and they're going to use it however they want to, and I'm not going to have any influence over that whatsoever. You can approach your, your relationships through, through control, Control produces suffering through envy, which produces, which produces emptiness. You can approach your relationships through isolation, and that produces hopelessness. You can do all of that. But then we get to this last section. This last section is Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Look at that with me again. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man 
might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. See, this could be your, this could be your approach to relationships. This is actually the one approach to relationships that, that really works. And it's a, it's a life together. It's recognizing that I need you and you need me. It's recognizing that I need the people that God has put in my life and, and you need the people God's put in your life. We need to figure out how to live our lives together. If that's our approach to relationships, together produces growth. That's what it does. Together produces growth. When I was a uh, student pastor, um, there was a seventh grade boy in my student ministry, and he and his Sunday school teacher, they did not get along at all. They just fought like cats and dogs. And one of the reasons they fought like cats and dogs is because the Sunday school teacher was trying to be in control. And one of the reasons why the student was having such a hard time is he was trying to be in control. And both of them were approaching their relationship from the perspective of control, and they just kept butting heads over and over and over again. And I sat down with a seventh grade boy and I said, hey, let me tell you something. This is something that God does in our lives. God puts people in our lives to knock off the rough edges. That's what he does. God uses people in our lives to refine and to shape our faith. And I'm not just talking about the things that you, that you learn just from a teacher who's teaching, but I mean this, these moments, these relational moments. And here's what's going to happen to you. This is what I told to the boy. I said, here's what's going to happen to you. You can figure out how to deal with the guy who has this personality right now. You can figure it out right now. And I can guarantee you, once you learn how to deal with this guy who wants to control everything, once you learn how to deal with him today, the next time you run into somebody else who's a controller, the next time you run into somebody else who's that kind of a problem, you know what? It's going to be easy for you because you've already had practice. As a matter of fact, I'd be willing to bet that God would arrange your life so that you don't run into that guy anymore. Not that guy specifically, but the person with that personality and the person with that problem. Because God wants you to learn how to do that. He wants to reshape the rough edges of your life. He wants to refine the quality of your faith. And he wants to grow the maturity of your faith. And you can figure that out right now. Or I can guarantee this. I can take you out of his class. I'm happy to do that. I'm going to make the choice yours. I can take you out of his class and I can put him, put you in somebody else's class. This year will be easier for you in Sunday school because I'll put you in somebody else's class. But here's what I can guarantee. God wants you to learn the lesson. And at some point, I may take you out of this class and put you in an easier class. But God's going to bring that, not that person, but God's going to bring that personality right back around because he wants you to learn the lesson. He wants you to figure out how to deal with that personality, with that person. I wonder what circumstance or what relationship you're in right now that God is using to refine your rough edges. I wonder who you've been placed in somebody else's life. I wonder who God's placed in somebody else's life, you, so that their rough edges could be refined. You can learn the lesson now or you can run from it. If you run from it, God's just going to bring that person back around. Because he intends for you to have a refined, mature faith. Together, it produces growth. You know, that, that idea at the end that, that it says in Ecclesiastes that a threefold cord is not quickly broken. That's such an important idea. Proverbs 27, 17 says this. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And a threefold cord, Ecclesiastes says, is not quickly broken. 
Now, what does that mean? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Well, it's that idea that God designed us to be better together. When, when we take our skills with the skills of someone else and, and combine them together, it, it's not addition that takes place. It's actually multiplication that takes place. In your strength, my, your strength can overcome my weakness, and my strength can overcome your weakness, and together we're just better. God designed us to be that way. And it's not a relationship simply between two people. It's a relationship between two people and their heavenly father. That's the nature of that threefold cord, that it's between us and our heavenly father. And in every relationship, here's what we really see. In every relationship, we see that there's someone who's the teacher, someone who's the learner, and someone who's the encourager. You need this in your life. You need to be a teacher to someone. You need to be a learner because of someone else, and you need to be an encourager to someone else. You need this desperately in your life. We all do. I need this. This is an approach to relationship that actually works. If you become and if you are looking for the teacher, the learner, and the encourager, we see this in Scripture. Remember of Paul and Timothy? Paul was the teacher. Timothy was the learner. Barnabas was the encourager. We need that. In our relationships, we need that in our lives. Uh, you see that in, in the way the Trinity works. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father in the Old Testament defines law. Man, don't our kids need that? They need someone in their lives who would define what law is. And then in the New Testament, God the Son, Jesus Christ, he delivers grace. He delivers grace. And so we've got one who defines the law and one who delivers grace. Isn't that exactly what you need in your life? You need someone who sets the boundaries, but since someone, when we make the mistake, can give us the grace we need to come back inside the boundaries, isn't that exactly what your kids need? Maybe it's dad defining the law and mom delivering grace. And then again in the, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit, I mean, the Holy Spirit empowers wisdom. He encourages us to do the right thing, to show us the right path, to help us understand uh, what we ought to be doing. And so maybe mom, maybe, maybe mom is the one who, who defines the law, and dad's the one who delivers grace. And maybe it's the grandparents who help the kids see the difference between the two and the significance of both and help the kids play inside the protective boundaries that parents provide. We need that threefold cord in our lives. We need to be the learner. We need to be the leader. We need to be the teacher. We need to be the encourager, and we need those in our lives. Guys, I'm going to talk to you directly for just a minute. Men, we're terrible at this. Unless it's sports, we're terrible at this. If it's sports, we're great. We're okay with having a coach, a player, and a fan, right? The coach who tells us what to do, the player who's supposed to get out there and do it, the leader, the learner, and the fan, the encourager, the one who would... If it's sports, we get it. But man, if it comes to marriage, don't tell me I need someone to counsel me in my marriage. Why not? You need a coach to help you learn how to spring, swing a bat. Why not a coach to help you ha learn how to love your wife more, more better? <laughs> Why not? You need a coach to help you learn how to swing a golf club better. Why not a coach to help you be a better dad? Why not? Why not be a coach to someone else? And sports really is... Such an, an incredible example of the way people approach life and what's good for us in our relationships. And really, for me, baseball is a great example. I love the way baseball works. Baseball, for me, is one of the most individual team sports you'll ever play. It's one of the most individual team sports you'll ever play. Because there's this moment where there's a pitcher on the mound and there's a batter in the box. And it's really a competition between two guys. And that's it. 
Two individuals playing against one another. The pitcher on the mound and the batter in the box. But as soon as the ball leaves the pitcher's hand, the pitcher needs a team. Because even if the batter misses, the pitcher needs a catcher to catch. So it seems like an individual sport until the ball leaves the pitcher's hand. And then the pitcher needs the catcher. And if the batter actually makes contact with the ball, he needs more than a catcher. He needs the guys out on the field to play defense. He needs the ball to be caught so that the batter's out. He can't possibly win the game just standing on the pitcher's mound. He can't possibly do it. And you know what? The batter in the box, it still it feels like this very individual moment. You're by yourself. You're in the box. You're ready to swing the bat. Maybe you swing. Maybe you miss. Maybe you swing. Maybe you make contact with the ball. The vast majority of people, their batting averages are, I mean, even if you've got an exceptional, world-class, professional average, you're at, you hit the ball, get on base, what, 45% of the time? That's if you're exceptional. Most people aren't going to hit a home run every time they hit the ball. So that batter, as soon as he swings the bat, if he makes contact with the ball, most of the time he's not going to hit a home run. He's only going to go as far as maybe one, maybe two, maybe three bases. And you know what he needs next? You know what he needs next? He needs the guy who's on deck to step into that batter box and bring him home. That's what he needs. And guys, in sports, we're great at this, but in life, sometimes we're terrible at this. You need a coach, and you need to be a coach. You are a player. You need to learn. You need to learn to be a better player. You need encouragement. You need a fan. Someone who will cheer you on. Someone who will point you in the right direction. Someone who will stop you before you walk off a cliff. I'm so thankful for the men in my life who do that for me. I love our lead staff, Chris and Keith and, and Brad. Together, the four of us, they do that for me. They encourage me when I'm down. They stop me before I walk off a cliff. They, they, they listen to me when I have crazy ideas. And sometimes we actually bring those crazy ideas to life. Keith Davis, I've known him for years. And one of the things he says over and over again, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Well, if that's true for me, I've got a pretty bright future. Is that true for you? Men, you need this. You've got to stop living in isolation, living in envy, or living for control. You've got to. I don't know how or where you're going to find it, but you need to be willing to find it first. Actually, that's not true. I do know how, we, how you're going to find it. There are people in this room who could be that coach to you or who need to be coached by you. There are people in your family who need your encouragement and need your words. There are groups that meet here inside this church all week long. There's actually lists of groups right outside the store of just men who meet for breakfast almost every day of the week. You could jump into a group like that and find a coach or find someone to coach. You could jump in a group like that and find encouragement or be someone who encourages. You could find all of that. The quality of our relationships matters. I don't know if you figured this out or not, but heaven, what makes heaven heaven is not the quality of the environment that you're going to go to someday. What makes heaven heaven is the person who's there. It's Jesus Christ that makes heaven heavenly. It's his perfection. It's not the perfection of a place. It's the perfection of a person. Jesus Christ is the one that makes glory glorious. We've got to get our relationships right. 
In, even with my, my own relationships with my wife, when I was younger, I traveled a lot. I would do camps, and I would, do, I, would, I would go from church to church singing and preaching. I would do all kinds of things. And one of the things I learned, sometimes Londa got to go with me, and sometimes she didn't. And sometimes I'd come home, and while I'm home, she would have to go do something similar to that somewhere else. And I found that my little house that I was in just was not satisfying with me all by myself in that home. And I found that my hotel room just was not satisfying with me there all by myself. It just wasn't satisfying. You know what I learned? Home is where my wife is. That's what I learned. That's what home is. Home is where my, life, where my wife is. You know, that's exactly what heaven is. It's not the place where things are perfect. It's the home where Jesus is. You need a coach. You need to learn some things. You need to be a coach. And you need to encourage others. As long as you approach your relationships through control, envy, and isolation, all you'll find is suffering, emptiness, and hopelessness. But in this moment, right now today, you could surrender your approach to the one who loves you the most and who loves you best. And so here's what I'd like to invite you to do. Just take a moment to bow your head and close your eyes. And today, you have an opportunity to say to the one, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate encourager, who is the one who is the deliverer of grace, who is the one who kept every law, to the one who is the powerful controller of all things, you have an opportunity to say to him, I'm isolated, I'm envious, and I'm, my life is just out of control. And to just surrender to him, to that relationship. You see, that's your first step. Your first step in healthy relationships with anyone else is a healthy relationship with your heavenly father. And when I say that our relationships may be the most difficult, most significant thing we ever learn how to figure out, when I say that, that first relationship between us and our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ did all the work for us. He paid the penalty on the cross at Calvary so that we could be forgiven of our sin, so that all of our weakness could be overcome, so that He could make the most of all of our strength, so that we could become the absolute best version of who God intends for us to be we can not because we're so good but because of the power of the spirit of Jesus Christ in us and today you can surrender to that as we sing in just a moment if you want to know more about how to do that you could come down front and you could say I want to know more about that after the service is over you could turn to a friend that the friend that brought you or you could say to someone seated near you hey I want to know what it means to be a follower of Christ I need to understand that better We'll sing, and as we sing, you'll have an opportunity to do both of those things. And some of us, some of us have been believers for a long time, but you're still living in control and envy and isolation. Maybe you just need to repent. Maybe you need to come to this altar and say, God, please forgive me for the way I've treated people, because the way I treat people is a reflection of what I really think about who you are. And the way I treat people, man, the way I treat people, Maybe you need to repent of that today. Maybe you need to make a phone call and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you need to turn to your wife or to your kids, to your husband, and say, I'm so broken inside. Please forgive me. I need some help. 
Maybe you need to offer some help. That's what this moment is for and each moment that's after it.